Welcome to an ungaged reaction to the unexpected news that Nicola Sturgeon is standing down as First Minister of Scotland and as leader of the SNP. Nicola Sturgeon has been First Minister since 2014, taking over from her predecessor in the wake from losing Scotland's independence referendum. She was the first woman to hold the office and steps down as the longest serving First Minister. Her time as SNP leader brought the SNP unparalleled election success, entrenching the SNP as the largest party in Scotland at Holyrood, Westminster and local authority levels. I'm your host today, David McClement, transmitting from the Blantyre Free State, and joining me to discuss this shocking turn of events is Kat Carey, co-host of Ungagged Talking Sense podcast and co-convener of SNP Socialists. Neil Anderson, Hello. member of member of the Scottish Green Trade Union Group and Ungagged's roving interviewer. And Brian Finlay, co-host of Hollywood and Gag and heir to Central Scotland's largest pizza heart-based business empire. Hello. Well, I didn't expect to be talking to you all today about this. Um, we just started, went in about a break from podcasting uh, in between seasons of Hollywood and Gag. And then the news dropped yesterday that none of us were expecting. So I think... Just, just get your first reactions. Uh, how you felt yesterday when you heard? Um, yeah. Um, surprise, shock, disbelief, um, worry, and ultimately, kind of awe at the political savvy in the in the move and how it was done. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, definitely surprised and shocked uh, myself. Um, I had, being um, being a teacher and in dispute at the moment, I had hoped that this emergency press conference was going to be saying that they were giving us the 10% that we want, but unfortunately <laughs> uh, that didn't happen. Um, so, yeah, i fairly much uh, amazed by it and, you know, amazed by that. Nobody knew um, that it was going to happen. There wasn't usually in political things these days. There's leaks all over the place, um, and there wasn't anything about it at all. So right. surprised. Yeah, similarly, I, I I didn't expect it to come um, yesterday, uh, particularly because it was has been so well not leaked. Which again, I think the biggest surprise for me was because I think we're used to seeing political leaders go down and some really like elongated problems that we can see that there's something coming along the line, you know, some quicker than others. Liz Trust, for example, was much quicker. Boris Johnson, much, much longer. Um, and I think the, the surprise that I think a lot of people are, are, are feeling and the reaction to it is because there was no telltale signs that this was imminent. Um, I think listening to Nicola Sturgeon's speech, I can... I think, I think just because Nicola Sturgeon was such a, an institution within Scottish politics and, and herself, I think that you know it's just something that we hadn't necessarily considered was was coming, and yeah, just just genuinely really really surprised, and yeah, just because there was no there was no telltale signs that this was this was imminent. Yeah, I think um, I heard it in a group chat. I think it was Deborah that put in Nicola Sturgeon resigned, and I did not even look at it twice. Because I just thought it was a joke. I thought it was like this, oh, Sturgeon must go sort of thing that the unionists constantly, you know, throw out at the most ludicrous um, justification. Um, so I didn't even check the rest of the group chat right away. And then when I came in, 
and saw people reacting like it was real that I was so taken aback. Um, there's so few politicians go at their own choosing. Um, like you said, Brian, you know, usually we'll get weeks of speculation are they going to go, are they not going to go. Um, and yeah, for it to just come out and play like that. Yeah, I was going to say, as, as surprised as we all were, this is kind of textbook Nicola and one of her really, one of her strengths as a politician to not show her hand at all when it really matters, you know, because we don't have a press that's on our side. We don't have, you know, the party, it, the SNP in itself is a very broad church, so it makes sense that she held this very close to the vest until she had the plan in place for herself to kind of free the party to do what they want, even though there really isn't a, like a successor mm -hmm. that she chose, which I think is also something that was very smart. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone but I spoke to every, every single person I spoke to, like, you know, as soon as the, the news started to break, I think the, the BBC break and notification was the first one to, to really kind of cement it there was a lot of speculation from different journalists that this is this is potentially going to happen but i think that was the first one and i forwarded that on to a few people and everybody was like oh that's a joke isn't it i was like no this is this is actually happening and um, so i think everybody's very much been in the same boat and uh you know even even opposition uh politicians supporters you know people who as, as Nicola put it naturally doesn't vote for her and um, i think everybody was really taken aback by it and i think uh yeah, just just general shock, I think. I've been trying to think of other kind of politicians at that kind of level that you know have resigned by their own volition rather than being pushed out. And the only one that I can think of, there, there might be others, uh, is uh, and this shows my age as well, um, is Harold Wilson, and he decided that he was retiring at retirement age, and he wasn't going any further, and he did it. And I, I can't think of any other sort of politician as a prime minister, um, certainly as first minister, because they've been um, far more recent, in that kind of position that, you know, has jumped rather than be pushed. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. The only one that I was thinking in my sort of time is maybe Tony Blair, but even he had Gordon Brown sort of taking him at the door. Um, it was planned. Sort of <laughs> his own decision, you know, Gordon Brown was happy to give him as much time as he needed to decide to leave as long as they decided to, like, you know, six months or whatever, but... Um, Aye, well, there was, there was battles going on between the two of them for, for ages, wasn't there? Yeah, I suppose there'll be international examples, like uh, Justine Dalbert recently stood down, I think that was quite surprising. Yeah, I think that the difference with Nicola Sturgeon and, and Jacinda Ardern is, is that uh, Jacinda's popularity in New Zealand was declining. I think the Labour Party was polling; they had dropped quite significantly over over certain months. And um, whereas, if you look at where the SNP is polling, okay, so the headlines as oh, SNP have dropped in the polls, so they're only forty five percent of the vote. Oh, okay, that's that's absolutely terrible. And um, you know that's more than what uh, Tony Blair got for the UK wide vote in nineteen ninety seven. So, you know, the SNP would have continued on if Nicola Sturgeon had not left and probably continued to win the next, you know, the next general election next year and, and whatnot. So, you know, I think with, uh, with Nicola Sturgeon, it's, it's entirely, you know, a personal choice that, you know, this is a, I've reflected, 
I'm going and you know I'm 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 going to go out on a high in terms of uh, the uh, the polling um, for, for the party at, at basically all levels. Did um, did everybody see the press conference? See the the what? Our press conference when she actually made the statement. Yes, I did. I watched it. What was your thoughts on that? I listened to it. <laughs> I think it was quite fascinating, actually, because it was typical Nicola Sturgeon. It was very humane. It was, I think, because of the context, it wasn't. She wasn't being pushed out. So you know, when you look at people like Theresa May or Liz Truss coming out raging, uh, that you know they're, they're having to resign, whereas Nicola Sturgeon sort of came in, you know, said her piece, took took um, some questions, uh, and then you know had a bit of a laugh and a joke and and kind of went about her day. So I think um, it was very sort of emblematic of how Nicola Sturgeon conducts politics. I think. Yeah, but you could you could certainly hear the emotion in her voice um, through all of it. But there was there was a few times where you could see her. Oh, she's kind of holding herself back from you know having a wee blob there. You know that was certainly listening to it. I, I don't know what it was like, uh, what she, she looked like when she was doing it. But that's how it sounded. I I can the the part that stuck out to me as probably the the most telling part of the speech i have it here i cannot in good conscience ask the party to choose an option based on my judgment whilst not being convinced that i would be there as a leader to see it through by making my decision clear now i free the smp to choose the path it believes is the right one without worrying what it means for perceptions of my leadership and in the knowledge that someone else will lead successfully along what other path is whatever path is chosen uh to me all the other stuff that's being tossed about, I think that was the crux. Other than being tired of all the abuse, being, I think she could take that for a little bit longer, but I think this was the crux of why she did it now. Yeah, and I think it's easy to underestimate the toll that must have been leading the country through the worst of the COVID crisis. Um, you know, and you know, in quite a contrast, I don't think Boris Johnson, you know, had uh, missed a second night's sleep during all. I just think it was another day at the office for him. But I think just maybe genuine... when he was partying. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because he was too drunk. Yeah. Um, but I totally believe that Nicola Sturgeon really felt the weight of that and the human cost. You know, yeah. having to go out and announce, you know, hundreds of deaths every day and. You know, I, I can't imagine what kind of toll that must take on somebody. So maybe in, the, in different times, you know, she would have carried on for another few years, but, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that must, be... must be a lot. But yeah. I think, you know, COVID probably put some, some other miles in the, the speedometer. That must have been a huge emotional journey uh, for her. And and certainly why I think um, sort of Scotland is so stunned as well is from how she acted during the pandemic and the the daily briefings and everything else. And I certainly know um, my mum, uh, by the end of it, uh, thought that she was absolutely fin- wonderful and fantastic. Never had any particular views on her before, but after all that stuff, my mum loved her, really did. And I'm sure that happened across the country with other people as well. Yeah, I can I can relate to that. My my parents are not naturally um, SNP <laughs> supporters, um, and and even they had made comments that you know throughout the COVID pandemic. I think, you know, a lot of the media outlets have picked up on her communication style, how she is likable as a person, how she comes across, and and all these types of things. And I think that was um 
really shown during that that really really bizarre um ever changing unpredictable time when that was one consistent thing that there would be a briefing at a certain time there would be you know these sort of announcements and there would be plenty um questions asked by by um, by journalists and things like that so i think that for a lot of people that didn't necessarily support uh, nicola sturgeon or support the position of the smp or the constitution or, or whatever it might be i think there was a lot of um you know, I think they could they could appreciate Nicola Sturgeon for, for the type of person and the type of leader she was uh, during that time. What I loved about those briefings uh, was when a journalist would ask a question that she had already answered it outlined, and she pointed out to them said, um, "Whatever it was, if you're listening earlier or whatever, I said this before, and I just like that just because so many journalists can." Uh, be nasty. Uh, not all, obviously. <laughs> well, I mean, I think we saw an example of that yesterday during the press conference. I was quite taken aback with the questioning that came after, came after quite an emotional statement from her where she explained the, the human cost of um, a job like that. And it just seemed like the whole agenda from the journalist there was to try and make it seem like she was forced out. Uh-huh. And I mean, it's just not true, as, as she said herself. You know, yes, there's short-term pressures, but exactly at what point in the last eight years did you know I've made that argument? Um, that it was because of whatever latest fabricated crisis, real or fabricated from the uh, opposition parties. Um, and I just thought it was really classless for the journalists. The it's, I always think journal, journalism and, and politics, sometimes they go over the score the other way. As soon as somebody announces they're standing down and resigning, suddenly, like somebody who was you were calling a scumbag the week before, is suddenly like you know a great statesman and has to be revered and respected. And they do that with some absolute charlatans that don't deserve any respect. But they couldn't conjure that up for Nicola Sturgeon for two minutes. You know, it was all about you know spurious, spurious questions about SNP finances, about um, trans prisoners. And I just thought, this is quite an important historic moment. And you just don't recognise that at all. Uh, I don't know I don't know how you felt, because I'm not, so I'm hoping that you agree with me. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think that that's one of the things about about her and her style is she is um, very straightforward and doesn't talk with any kind of spin on, on what she's saying, whereas most politicians do and I think journalists find that annoying that she is just straightforward and honest about stuff and that they can't wheedle in some way because she doesn't do that I think that um, she's very unapologetic in tone and and very you know sure of herself and her decision making but she's not afraid to apologize when she's made a mistake and I think that drives them nuts like people who don't support her, I think it drives them nuts because it takes a lot of a lot of way that they can and some easy digs that can make it a lot of leaders they can't make at her because of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think there was um was it the recording? I think it was streamed on Sky News where there was uh, Glenn Campbell of BBC and, and somebody else. I, I don't actually know his name. Who <laughs> was sat next to him? I believe it was another BBC journalist. Um, you know, making making digs about uh having to pay too much tax um, because of their earnings. Um, so, 
I think what we're starting to see. Well, I think we've. I think a lot of us, a lot of us have always known that, and I think um, the Scottish electorate have picked up on this, particularly because we've got a government, like you said at the start, is not particularly favoured uh, in media circles. That you know, regardless to how much these institutions paint themselves as as not being biased it's impossible to have something that's completely unbiased, right? So if you're reporting on something, you're going to have preconceived ideas, you're going to have your your, your values and all this kind of stuff. And there's sometimes these little nips, these little exposures of the fact that that exists. And if we've got journalists who earn X amount where they do fall into the higher earners and they do have to pay more tax under a progressive system, then perhaps that in itself shows the types of people who are reporting the news and perhaps is not representative of the working class across Scotland. Yeah, I mean, Neil, you were saying you listened to it, so you might, you might not saw this, but the, the two journalists you were talking about clearly didn't know they were on the live stream. And they were absolutely buzzing. You could not have got the smiles off their face with a chainsaw. They were absolutely, they were like kids in Christmas morning. And it just, to me, it just showed a, such a disconnect between the media and between everybody else, because, you know, I certainly wasn't feeling like that. Um, uh, the, but they were clearly buzzing at this, whereas I think most people I spoke, they certainly, you know, shock, kind of like some sadness. Um, just, I was quite astounding. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, that, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think that uh, talks for um, the media in Scotland and especially... Uh, the, the the BBC in Scotland, what the what they're like and how they view things, they are just so smug, and think they are so fantastic, and uh, yeah, they're not. <laughs> yeah, and how privileged they are, perhaps. Um, yeah. There was a pic. I saw the clip that Brian's talking about, and it is, it's very telling. It's it's an amazing thing to have caught on on film with the audio, especially. But there was also a picture before the announcement of the journalists all outside waiting to get in. And the the press pack for Hollywood are overwhelmingly white men of a certain age. You know, maybe some are younger, but they're, they're all white men. I think maybe there were two women journalists in the room when she announced. So, um, yeah, it, it's just uh, we need... We need a better representation of the public in our journalists. And, I don't know and, how that's going to change or when. <laughs> it probably won't. No, I, I completely agree. And I think it's about diversification of, of these types of um, of uh, jobs and, and careers. But I think, you know, widening the scope a little bit is some of the, the coverage across the UK. And I think this is, again, you know, it really is coming to a bit of a discussion about the media really is that there's so many people out there that just do not understand um, or don't fully know the details of of Scottish politics and you know how it operates and, and what the history and, and and whatnot is and some of the really strange comments that have been made by by um journalists based in other parts of the UK um but on the flip side of that you've got um some people an uh, independent media so uh, Navarra media for example ran that as their head main story in the podcast yesterday um and their coverage was was inclusive um of I think they had a an editor from the national and Ross Greer um were the guests to discuss it so you know there's a, perhaps um some of the more establishment media could um 
take some lessons from independent media about how to make sure that the correct voices are being spoken to um, and perhaps they could then do a better service uh, towards their readers and listeners. Mm. They certainly could, but um, whether they're, they're wanting to do that is a big question, isn't it? How, how we, as a not just as, as individuals, but get them to, to, to consider that, to do that? How do, how do we make that happen? Well, I mean... I just don't know what you uh, what they think about um, those sort of journalists because they're the first ones that are so offended when people on Twitter, you know, call them biased or call them a unionist. And it's like, well, look at the optics here. If you're upset about that, maybe don't appear beaming on a live stream about the prospect of um, Nicholas Sturgeon resigning. You know, you think over all profession, a journalist would have a good idea of optics, but. You know, they were completely out the window there. Um, and, uh, you know, it just feeds into the the preconceived um, notions that a lot of people in the guest movement have got about the, uh, the mainstream media. You know, and it's hard to make an argument that against it when you see pictures like that. Yep. But, uh, so where does the indie movement go from here? Well, I think it just continues as it is, just because uh, uh, Nicola Sturgeon has stepped down as first minister. For me, that doesn't that doesn't change anything. I think we've just got to continue uh, as we are. Hopefully, uh, their uh, the next uh, uh, leader of the SNP, and um, and then if they get in as first minister, uh, just continues on a on a similar path. That's that's what I'm hoping for, certainly. Yep. I agree. So as, as the token SNP member here, <laughs> I think that maybe part of her resigning right now is to kind of signal that she is not the independence movement on her part, right? Because some people are clutching their pearls and saying the sky is falling, but it's, it's not. It's not over. It continues. So every time people... I guess I don't need that um, this is the last time thing to motivate myself. I think some people do, but to me, it it helps me with my focus and with my drive to know that it's never over, right? It, it's always going to continue. Um, I, I don't know. There are certain people jockeying for positions for leader that I think would take the uh, the movement in a decidedly different direction, but... Um, in the time that I've belonged to the SN, been an SNP member, every time something is put to the membership that I'm a little bit nervous about, we kind of come out on the more progressive lefty side of things. Um, so I, I have hope for for the independence movement and for whoever's chosen as the next leader and the next first minister, who may not be the same person, but probably uh, will be. But also she said, I mean, she's not standing down as an MSP. She was talking about doing stuff from the the back benches, and I'm, uh, I'm, you know, Scottish independence was a a lifelong goal, so she's not leaving that um, that campaign either. She's still going to be there. She's still going to be joining in and doing stuff. Might not be the head of it, but she's still going to be involved very much from what she said. I cannot wait to see her as a backbench MSP. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to that. Like, imagine her on a committee. You know, or just giving a speech at a member's business debate. It'll be amazing. 
Yeah, I mean, similar to Neil, I, I don't think personally that it's going to have a huge impact on the direction of the independence movement as a movement. I think we need to be really conscious. And this is where, again, if we, we harp back to how the media sort of paints that, oh, it's problematic for the independence movement. Well, the SNP is not the independence movement, first of all. The, uh, the SNP is only the... Uh, the current governed party that will lead us to have a legal referendum, right? So really when we get to that point, then it becomes a campaign of of yes and no or, or whatever it, it, it's going to look like and who's going to lead that. Well, I mean, we don't know. Um, so I, I think that it's important to, to, to kind of pull these two things apart. What, you know, for, for me... What my biggest worry was, because I think because Nicola Sturgeon has been such a constant figure in Scottish politics, for me it's like, okay, so there's going to be change, there's going to be change who the First Minister is. So I think that could potentially have more of an impact on policy, day-to-day -day policy, um, and how that will be communicated, how that's going to be brought forward, how priorities will be set. I think that's actually more what potentially could change depending on who is um, elected as, as the leader of the SNP and therefore First Minister. But for the um, for the independence movement, we're ultimately waiting for a date or ultimately waiting for a mechanism that's going to allow um, an independence referendum to happen. And then, of course, like, like the last referendum, there will be an official campaign but within that there'll be different groups of people who are you know wanting to achieve independence for for different means and 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 ultimately trying to, and raise the popularity of a yes vote so i don't think that will necessarily necessarily change i mean i'm a bit concerned and um, you know she was just such a big figure and you know like there's such recognition um beyond any other scottish politician certainly um but I do well, wonder if it's got difficulty to replace that figurehead. And... Uh -huh. My recollection is that she wasn't always considered that way. And, you know, before when she was, you know, a deputy first minister and stuff that didn't have a particularly great media profile, but has grown into it very much. Don't get me wrong. Um, so there could be somebody else out there that's the same that we don't know too much about at the moment, but is really good and will kind of grow into that role and and do uh, a, just the same type of job or a better job than uh, than than uh, Nicola Sturgeon has, has done already. I yeah, totally I mean, agree. No, you go, Kat. I I agree with what you're saying, Neil. I think. Um, you know, in different jobs I've had throughout my life, sometimes you go, I, I have said, I don't think this person is up to the job, but sometimes you have to give someone the kind of responsibility before they're able to rise to the challenge. So uh, I agree with you there. And I do think a lot of people saw Nicola as um, like mousy or weak maybe not weak, but like not up to leading, not having the charisma or whatever. And, and she proved them wrong. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, I remember like way back, probably the early days of the Scottish Parliament. Um, she was sort of, like people in politics like, knew who she was because she was kind of prominent in the SNP. Uh, and I actually found most people didn't really, really warm to her. Um, she also ran for the leadership in 2004 and it was quite unsuccessful and 
be the say so they ended up coming back and um and i think sometimes people underestimate what it takes to be you know like a national leader like that um there's this idea that a bit kind of romantic that you know people will be kind of just chosen for the job and it's not something you need to learn and I think the fact that Nicola Sturgeon has been, without, in my opinion, one of the most successful political leaders uh, in UK modern history, I don't think it's a coincidence that she had a really long um, apprenticeship, if you want to call it. You know, she was in the front line of SNP politics for a long time as like a cabinet member. She had a long period as deputy leader, and it really, it was quite seamless and. And she was also so at the forefront. She took part in the debates in the first independence referendum. So when she stepped in as that, you know, as the into the top job, it was such a natural progression. And you know, she did then grow into the job even more. I always think, yeah, so uh, the an equivalent is I always thought Kezia Dugdale the first time I saw her like uh, appear in the media, and. She just, I thought, oh, she's a star. Like, you know, she's going to go far in politics. She's really capable. And what happened was she was forced into the top job way too soon because Jim Murphy, you know, led them to an absolute disaster in the 2015 uh, election. He ended up out of the job and they looked about and, were, and Scottish Labour really had nobody else. So they put her in the job probably 10 years before they should have. And, you know, it, it didn't go well. And I think if Kezia Dugdale had had the same sort of chance as Nicola Sturgeon to sort of grow into the role, um, she may still be about and could have been a much bigger political figure. I'm looking about and I, I, I don't really see anybody that's like that natural successor the way Nicola Sturgeon was like eight years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's... it's... I think it's interesting you've you've mentioned um, Kezia Dugdale because Kezia Dugdale, um, I think Kezia Dugdale's downfall as as the leader of the Scottish Labour Party was the Scottish Labour Party, to be honest, and and their policy and the control that was was kind of put and 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 Kezia Dugdale was sort of painted into a corner and these are the different things that you can say, um, and I think because what we saw when Kezia Dugdale was not fighting the constitutional battles that was was really dominant, particularly during the sort of that that kind of earlier stage of Brexit was that Kezia Dugdale gave one of one of my favourite speeches actually in the Scottish Parliament over the rape clause because I think the way that she um the way that she had managed to construct her argument and you know used anecdotes and things like that from from people was actually a really really good speech and I just think that had Kezia Dugdale been I don't know a leader of 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 a different Scottish Labour or 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 you know perhaps been in a different party for example then I think actually that that she could have been actually a really really quite formidable politician um as her career progressed but that's that's kind of a side note but I just had to to say that about Kezia Dugdale because you know and Kezia's written a a nice piece in in the Courier um about Nicola Sturgeon and even you know Ruth Davidson. Uh, took to Twitter to to at least say something kind, um and and to acknowledge um you know what Nicholas Sturgeon had achieved uh, as a politician and I think that in itself because that seemed to be like the three kind of leaders of 
the the parties for quite some time and there was a constant battle between these three uh, women who who were leading these parties um and you know for both of them to come out and, and acknowledge that i think is is more of a, a testament to to nicola sturgeon as a leader and as a politician in contrast to the douglas ross's statement the scottish stories which was just again very much like the media completely lacking in any class or decency <laughs> It was textbook Tory, uh-huh. the current the current Tories. Um, I even saw, um, like uh, Alex Cole Hamilton and Joe Swinson both said stuff where I really don't enjoy agreeing with the Lib Dems, but I do agree with them on some things, and and they did show some class there. So a little bit of recognition yeah. of that, I guess. I, I think the first grudging. Because- because soon as soon as the news broke and the press conference was coming, I you know I put on BBC News and like Alex Cole, Alex Colhamon was the first person to be interviewed on the BBC and I was like, oh no, what's this going to be? And you know, to, to his credit, he didn't go for the you know the usual levers that would would be pulled by by politicians like Alex Colhamon. But yeah, just you know, just have a bit of class because I actually think in situations like this where where people are settling in and taking in news, which is you know acknowledging you know historical leadership and 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 scottish government that they're not really wanting these political jibes right now it's almost like okay we're going to acknowledge this we're going to take the news in we're all really shocked you know we're going to wait and see what nicholas sturgeon's got to say and this is before the press conference and then we can return to to politics as it should be and i just think that yeah, the I didn't actually read the full statement because it was quite lengthy. Uh, you know, it was it was that meme that gets shared. I'm really sorry that happened to you, or you know, um, or whatever is good for you. You know, this meme where people's like, I'm not reading all that. So, um, but yeah, it was very much just like it was time to go, and I just think I just wonder what what reality the Scottish Tories live in when they felt that that was the right thing to say and it's almost and it's because they've created this culture war you know specifically the Scottish Tories and and which has intensified over the past month that it's almost like because we've created this problem and we've been going on about this problem for four or five weeks now and it, it was definitely the time for for Nicola Sturgeon to go so it's almost them trying to take some sort of credit for it and it wasn't because you know, if they want to talk about polling yeah. figures, let's talk about polling figures because you know Scottish Tories are fluctuating between sixteen to eighteen percent, which is a lot less than what they got in twenty twenty one. So, if you want to talk about polling, then you know, let's talk about polling. Yeah, if you looked at all the opposition parties and their sort of reactions, the Scottish Tories was much less like the rest of them and much more like Donald Trump's uh, statement at release, which was basically, you know, I hate Nicola Sturgeon. I'm glad she's away. You know. Mm. And just as a wee aside, I often wonder what reality Tories live in. <laughs> yeah. Not the same one as the rest of us, that's for sure. Uh, definitely not, no. <laughs> On the, the Donald Trump statement, I was kind of happy. I mean, not happy to see it, but it was, you know, it made me feel good. And also, um, if anybody watches last week tonight with John Oliver, that premieres, the season premieres on Sunday and I think that kind of cemented it as being talked about on an extremely popular show worldwide. Um, I'm I'm really excited because I think the opening will be about this a little bit. I, I hope so. Anyways, so um, I, I missed that. What did what did Trump say? Uh, basically, Nicholas Sturgeon is terrible. It's good that she's resigning. He made, he's been building wonderful golf courses, and she's been trying to stop him. 
basically yeah and uh, she was a woke extremist i think that was oh, the yeah. the actual quote um but to be honest if donald trump saying things like that about you i think basically what he's doing is reinforcing uh, the the support that nicola sturgeon's got cuz you know generally if people are either voting for or have sympathy or support nicola sturgeon they really don't have much respect for donald trump so if donald trump saying daft things like that that you know i'm i'm the best businessman that built these great golf courses in scotland then actually they're just going to you know it's just going to reinforce the the support for Nicola Sturgeon so like like Kat was kind of alluding to I think actually it was quite a positive reflection of Nicola Sturgeon's leadership so you know um, yeah I think, I think if Donald Trump phases you he should rethink what you're doing yeah I was um so I was preparing to and in the process of moving here while he was campaigning in 2016 and I remember I was starting to watch more more television more BBC mostly television over here and I saw um, a documentary about Donald Trump and I was like, oh, they hate him in Scotland. Then this was definitely the right choice to make for my <laughs> life and for my family. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, we take a look at the sort of runners and riders, the people that have been rumored to run to replace Nicholas Sturgeon. I just looked at odds checker to see who the, it's a bit of a strange list. Look, it's seven people in the list. One of them is even in the SNP. <laughs> Alex Cole Hamilton's 14 to 1, apparently. But I don't get how that works. I think he had Star Wars on there, too. That's incredible. Not in Malice. Um, and he probably would never be in Malice. But um, the, the bookies that I checked has got Angus Robertson as like, the favourite, which surprised me. Thoughts on that potential Angus Robertson? First minister, Brian. Um, lukewarm. I I don't actually have much to say really about Angus Robertson. Um, he has obviously been around for some time. He was the leader of the the SNP Westminster Group um until twenty seventeen. Is that right? Um, but actually, one thing I would say is that when Angus Robertson, obviously he, I think he lost the seat in 2017 uh, and then stood for election in 2021. I would, when he was elected, it was Edinburgh Central, um, I believe he actually thought he was going to be more prominent than he was, but he's actually not been as prominent in the news coverage as I expected them to since he went into Holyrood. And I don't know if it's just because I've not been following certain things that he's been doing but I actually thought he was going to be a much bigger um, or more, I don't know, used in, in media circles. But he actually hasn't. So um, I'm quite lukewarm towards Angus Robertson. I think he might end up being the successor. Um, I think Oz Checker is, is onto one there. But, I mean, only time will tell. I've, I really don't have much of an opinion on Angus Robertson, whether that be negative or positive. Um, and also, I don't really know beyond the constitutional stuff, which obviously is his portfolio in Hollywood, I don't actually know what Angus Robertson stands for. So I think that that's maybe why I'm a bit lukewarm. I don't know what, you know, generally when you look to to certain frontline politicians, you're like, oh, that person's really vocal about X. That person's campaigned for Y. Um, And I think with Angus Robertson, I don't, I, I just don't know enough about him and what his passions are, which could be on me. But, um, yeah, I'm generally quite lukewarm at the moment, so I'm interested what other people have got to say. Does anybody else have strong feelings about Angus Robertson one way or the other? 
Um, not me, no, I'm very much the same as as Brian. Yeah, um, I mean, I know he's there and he's done stuff, but yeah, just kind of, hmm, oh yeah, aye, I've heard of him. Angus Roberts and a human shoulder shrug. <laughs> Cat, say something good about I, Angus Roberts. Well, I, I'm the member, I'm a member of the same branch as he is, and I campaigned for him. Um, when it comes to social issues, I think he's very socially progressive. I think that Brian is absolutely correct that he hasn't been centered in the media, but I, I, I don't think that that's something that he's upset about. I think that's possibly clever, maybe by design. Um, he's never going to be the most, he's never going to be most progressive, but I mean, maybe it's sort of like a, a Biden where he's kind of in the center of how everything moves, but more to the progressive side, but he waits for public opinion and consensus. Um, I, but, you know, I, I kind of group him in with John Swinney as like those, those yeah. brand of candidates and maybe to a lesser extent, Keith Brown as well. If he, if he stands for it. Um, I don't, I don't really want to say bad stuff about him because <laughs> I think he's a nice guy and I, um, might not see eye to eye with him on economics, right? I'm clearly more lefty than he is. But um, I do think we have a straight white man leader in Westminster. I would really be disappointed if we had a straight white man in Holyrood as, as a party leader and as first minister. But I wouldn't break my heart if it was Angus or John or Keith. You know, I think they all three of them would do a great job. Um but I'll wait to hear the pitches and, and that. I don't want to, yeah. It's it's difficult for me, right? Because <laughs> sometimes... It's only one out of the four years that I actually get to vote in this. Um, yeah, I do get to vote, so... Um, um, it, I was, it, it was interesting that you linked Angus Roberts and John Swinney and Keith Brown there because they're all in the list. And I find, I kind of think of them all are really in the same sort of terms. They're all sort of maybe just the last political generation, I'd like them to move forward. Um, mm. It would seem like a bit, yeah, at least a sidestep uh, to go with somebody. Um, Different. Well, it, Keith Brown is deputy leader right now, mm -hmm. and I really like him, right? But quite selfishly, I want him to be justice secretary still going forward because he's probably the most progressive justice secretary we've ever had in Scotland. And I think he does an amazing job. So, I mean, would he still have that influence as first minister? Yes. But, uh, yeah, that's three men I have a lot of respect for and agree with on more things than I disagree. But can, can we just maybe not always have straight white men in charge? <laughs> so, uh, David, who in, in, in the list that you've got is not a straight white man? Kate Forbes. Kate Forbes, what about that cat? She's not a straight um, white man. I mean, she's on maternity leave right now, right? Does that rule her out? She she would not be my preference. I think uh, I disagree with her on both economic and and social issues. Um, I can't think of she she's somebody that I am quite. She's from a different part of the party than I am. Let's say it that way. 
In a very broad church, we're probably as far apart as you can get. Yeah, this is where the, the SNP and the broad church, um, I think, is quite problematic. Um, from an outsider looking in, that's my opinion. Um, no, I'm not a fan of um, Kate Forbes. I think similarly to Kat, um, I believe that she is quite socially conservative about certain issues, um, whether that be access to abortion. Um, I believe, um, although I don't believe there's much she hasn't said this explicitly. I don't believe she's supportive of the gender recognition reform uh, bill. Um, but obviously we've not been able to test that in Parliament because we, obviously, as as Kat said, she's been on maternity leave. Um, so I sit way from Kate Forbes on my political spectrum. I don't think I can see Kate Forbes from where I am. Um, so I don't have much more to say beyond that that I would be quite concerned and I also think that if Kate Forbes was to become um, First Minister I believe that that potentially could put at risk the the deal with the Greens <laughs> so I think that's something else to be mindful of however like Kat said earlier on, and I found this as well, that when um, votes are put to the, the SNP membership, it tends to come out more on the, the, the centre progressive, centre left sort of outcomes. So I don't know if that would be the case. Um, I believe that there was there was a headline that was that was being shared. I don't I don't exactly remember what year it was from, where Kate Forbes attended Brian Souter's church for a prayer meeting. That, as a queer person, scares the hell out of me. And I'm sure there's more context to that. I think there is, I'm sure, you know, Kate is, is not here to 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 enlighten us on, on what that was about. But I think that for me, as, as a queer person, that just sets massive alarm bells ringing. And um, like Kat said, we've, we've not got any pitches from, from who's actually going. There's not many people who have thrown their hat in the ring yet. I mean, it's only been, what, 24 hours, really. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what the pitches are like. But that's that's where I'm at with, with Kate Forbes. Kate Forbes kind of potentially pulls at a thread that could unravel a lot of things, because I agree, I don't see the Greens being able to work with a Kate Forbes government. Um, in which case she would be the SNP leader, but would she have the vote to become First Minister? Which then would, you know, create another kind of procedural crisis. And would it then, and would we end up in an early election if they couldn't appoint a new First Minister? In which case, does that suddenly, how does that do with the de facto referendum um, timetable? It just, I think it could create a lot of, a bit of a, a mess. Yeah, I was going to say, as as an American who who is not from a evangelical Christian background, her attending that prayer breakfast is a huge alarm bell for me. But yeah, um, uh, yes, there's that. I I do put Kate Forbes. Maybe it's not fair to group her with Ash Regan and Joanna Terry, but I kind of group those three together as people who I I don't I. I most likely won't support in their leadership bids while while trying to maintain as much positivity and uh, professional cordialism or whatever you want to call it uh, as possible. Neil, any thoughts on Kate Paul? Um, not anything more than has been said. Both uh, Kat and Brian have 
expressed <coughs> expressed exactly what my opinions would be in Kate Forbes as well. One on the economics and two on the I don't know how would you put it non progressiveness uh, in her social views. Um, and there was a weird oh sorry Jim. and there was a there was a I think it was written by uh, Chris Deenan. Um there was an article in the New Statesman about how Kate Forbes would be in the Labour Party if she wasn't in the SNP, which I thought was really bizarre. Um and it seemed before this news came that Nicola Sturgeon was resigning that Kate Forbes was being sort of pushed a little bit of, oh, this could be the future of the SNP, or oh, wouldn't she be a great leader? Um, so I found that quite interesting in itself, but also I just had to point to that article because it was absolutely bananas. I, w- um, I would say to everyone suggesting Kate Forbes, whether it's a desire to have somebody outside the central belt or to have like a, a younger woman, I would point to Mary Goujon as a better alternative if she puts herself forward. Neil, you had some strong feelings about John Swinney. Want to talk about that? <laughs> uh, yes, I, I, I have. I just, uh, I don't like him uh, at all. Um, as I said before, I'm a teacher, and when he became education secretary, it all just went wrong. Um, and I can remember. We had uh, EIS, EGM. One year we had uh, Mike Russell. It's Mike Russell, isn't it? Uh, And he uh, got resounding applause. And then the next year, because of things that John Swinney had said already, he was the only time I've ever seen it um, or known it. He got booed from the floor of the EIS, EGM within about five Five to ten minutes, somebody walked up and, and booed him. And that was just because of the policies he tried to put in action and the way he was talking about it. And, yeah, I see him as divisive. Um, he, yeah, just doesn't include people. Nicola Sturgeon includes people when she's doing things. And even if she might not do that in reality, talks that way. He doesn't talk that way. Is is yeah, not somebody I, I like at all. Uh, I think it would be, I think it would be the the end of the SNP uh, in power, or the beginning of the end of the SNP in power in Holyrood, if if he became first minister. I think there'd be a lot of people who would start to to vote differently. I, I think because John Swinney's been around so long, I think he would have a reasonable chance if he run. But I feel as if people. Get like collective amnesia and forgot that he was the SNP leader before, and he led them to the worst election result since devolution. Um, I think in 2003, like I think that was the lowest seat total from mm-hmm. any election. Um, I don't see why it would be that different. Um, his, his problem was never competence, so I'm sure like all these years doing the job, he's better at the jobs, but um. He just never really seemed to be able to connect very well through the media to the electorate, and I don't, I don't think that's something he's getting any better at. It seems like, you know, it's just, it's just a skill that I don't know he's brought, um, and I don't think he would be a great figurehead for the SNP or, you know, if he was at the forefront of an independence campaign. Yeah, I am. Um... 
John Swinney, I'm not particularly enthusiastic about. I am not even enthusiastic when the SNP select John Swinney to go on question time because I don't think that he is very good at communicating with an audience, which I think you were kind of touching on there. And I think obviously we've seen that then when he was leader that, you know, that the, the uh, SNP election in 2003 wasn't, wasn't, you know, it was one of the best, one of the worst results, sorry. But I think what we can say is that in 2003 is completely different from what an election would be in, you know, 2020, about five, six. I think that the, the whole landscape is, is totally different from then. So um, with John Swinney, I, yeah, I don't think he is the best communicator. I I know I, when I watch First Minister's questions and he's standing in, you know, for whatever reason, um, I don't feel that he performs as well as Nicola Sturgeon but again I do believe that Nicola Sturgeon is, 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 is actually excels in the communication uh, aspect of things and, and dealing with the First Minister's questions and debates John Swinney does not um, but also I've got concerns um, about the budgets that were passed um, when John Swinney was um, Finance Secretary um, I don't think that there was the best decisions were made during that time. Um, I believe that we should have been moving towards a more progressive taxation system much earlier than we did. And the only reason we started to see that happening was because of the Greens' influence to pass the budget. I've been critical of the Greens as well on this, that there should have been more before there was an agreed to pass the budget. But um, so economically and from a communications side of things, I don't think that John Swinney would be the best option for the SNP. Again, like you're suggesting as well, that John Swinney's been around for, for quite some time and I just don't feel that straight white man being around for a long time is necessarily the, the direction that the SNP should be going in at this particular time. Um, and I thought, um, I thought yesterday from uh, Nicola's speech that um, she was talking about the, the talent and the young talent that's in the SNP and she was saying that uh, she wouldn't want to see somebody um, in the position who the public already have a fixed view about. Uh, and for me, that was her dismissing uh, John Swinney and other people uh, as well and wanting to go for somebody who was really different and, and new rather than somebody that is well-known already. And uh, certainly from what I've just said, as a member of the public, I have fixed views on on, on him uh, and there will be other people around that are the, the same. And that doesn't mean it's not going to happen. But for me, from what she said, she doesn't want that to happen. She wants somebody new in there um, uh, and, and somebody different from um, old straight white men. Um, the next candidate is probably who I would probably vote for, I think, if I had a, if I was an SNP member, is Hamza Yusuf. Anyone any thoughts who wants to go first? Uh, well, um, definitely not white, <laughs> if that's okay to say. Um, yeah, he seems to do a, a reasonably uh, good job with, uh, with media and stuff, and I think a lot unfortunately, <clears throat> of the way things go at the moment for leaders of political parties, it's how they deal with the media and how they come across to everybody. And, yes, he seems to do that fairly well. And, yeah, a lot of the stuff that he's, he's done and is implemented has been uh, has been good 
Ähm, auch schon. Ja. I kind of wanted to go last on this one. Right. <laughs> yeah, um, Hamza Youssef, um, he has been in ministerial posts when there's been quite a lot of drama going on and how he's navigated it generally has been quite positive. I can't say that he, it was as positive whilst the NHS um, was in the spotlight. I, I don't necessarily think that he handled that as well as what he could have done. However, that aside, um, he seems competent. He seems to to know his brief. He seems to to be able to to you know negotiate um, his media interaction. Um, in terms of implementation of policy. Hums is one of these people that was moved around portfolios quite a lot. So I think it was quite challenging for me personally as an onlooker, somebody who's not on the SNP, somebody who doesn't tend to follow the the, the mechanisms of the SNP very closely. I, I just didn't necessarily see one thing that Hums has started from scratch and delivered and delivered well. So I think my opinion is very much, I don't know, um, similar maybe to, to Angus Robertson. Um, but the one thing that did sort of stick in my head there was was some of the media appearances during the NHS when the, the NHS was was really under it when you know there was um you know uh, you know some sort of declaration that, that you know in Glasgow say sorry Greater Glasgow NHS w w you know was really really under it I just don't think that that was negotiated as well as what it potentially could have been but of course I'm sure he um has probably learned from that as well so I think it would be interesting to see what his pitch is um I think it would be interesting to see what his platform is I do believe that he is more on the progressive side socially cons uh, progressive side which is positive so I think it'll be interesting to see um if he chooses to stand um and what his uh, his pitch will be, um, you know, whether it be on domestic policy, also wider uh, on the constitution, but um, absolutely wouldn't write him off. But we'll uh, we we shall see what what the what the platform is. Yeah. Um, I think that what Brian, I, everything that's been said, I think is fair so far. Um, I think that him having different diverse portfolios over time is a strength for him. So he really has an understanding of different stuff. And, you know, the hate crime bill was messy. I, I do think that yes. was, but you can, you could see that he can stand there and, and take something through that's difficult um, to, to whatever success, I guess that's, that's up to the, that's in the eye of the beholder. Um, when I was out campaigning, in 2021 for Angus Robertson and Graham Campbell. I had a lot of people on the street say, where are the people of color in the SP? Right. And we elected Cocab Stewart years too late, in my view. Um, and they they would say, like, Hamza Yusuf's been there forever. He's just, you know, where when are there gonna be more? When will he be at a higher level? And not making this a an identity politics whatever i think he has the ability um and also from a purely like whether machiavellian perspective what better way to cut votes from labor for people who are not decided because a lot of people voted labor for anna sarwar who who might not care about the constitutional question i mean there's not a lot of people but 
there are people who who might lean one way or another without without that being the the be all end all of how they vote um yeah i i look forward to seeing Hamza's pitch as well um when i think of someone rising to the occasion that's kind of who pops in my head of sometimes people discount him or ask whether he wants it or the abuse that he may take on as a person of color um I think that he's up to the challenge, but, you know, it, it's very difficult for me because some of these people I know as human beings and I, I have a lot of time for them and, and quite like them. So it's, it's, this is a very difficult conversation for me to have, but. Uh, I, th um, I think a, a big quality that um, Hamza Yusuf has over a lot of politicians is I think he just comes across as very likable. And I think that's like, gold dust, because most politicians don't come across as particularly like, even the ones that might be in real life uh, don't always, it doesn't always translate uh, you know, he was a real rising star I mean, he's only 37 now which, as a 41 year old, I consider very young um, and he has been about for a long time I think maybe he's kind of star faded a wee bit, because he did he, he, when he moved into some of the uh, the bigger cabinet jobs and you know you wouldn't say it was a failure but it wasn't like an unmitigated success you know you had troubles and uh, stuff you had to deal with um, and I think that maybe just kind of blunted his momentum a wee bit uh, but certainly at one stage I think people would have you know predicted him to be a true in for uh, to be a, a SNP leader one day and then I mean yeah, like I said, though, I would, I think I would probably, as it stands, I would probably vote for him. To me, the, the three names that have been bandied about for years are uh, Hamza, Angus, and Kate. Um, so, you know, he he has been in in the membership's consciousness or in the public consciousness for a long time. And a good friend of mine pointed out recently, yesterday that Hamza means lion and and kind of saying it was destiny if you believe in that sort of thing, which I don't. Um, <laughs> but again, looking forward to see his pitch and wondering how close we are to the end of your list, David. Uh, there's only one more person on the list. Well, I didn't think we'd bother talking about how it's called Hamilton. That seemed about yeah, a, a weird aberration <laughs> that you weren't going yeah. to last year. Um, and a bit like whom uh, is Mary Black basically is the final one on the list, and I think she'd be very popular in uncag circles. I'm not convinced she's actually going to run, uh, but the bookies think she might. But so, how how would that work? So, um, if she ran and she won, she'd be leader of the SNP, but she wouldn't be able to be first minister because she's not in the Scottish Parliament. Well, we've had a similar situation where SNP didn't have the leader in the Scottish Parliament. Um, I would assume there would be some seat shifting in order to get her into the Scottish Parliament sooner than waiting to the next election. Um, but there's nothing in the rules that stops an MP from running. Oh. But if, if nothing else, then there needs to be an interim First Minister. Or would Nicola... Sturgeon just keep doing it until that was able to happen, or yeah, no idea. You know, if 
you know, I mean, theoretically, we could get somebody to resign a safe seat tomorrow, you know, uh-huh. and get Manny, Manny Black to stand in it, you know, so that if he desperately wanted to do that, he could get to do it rather quickly. Um, but it would feel a bit messy at the same time. Uh-huh. I think that a scenario where any MP, because any member can stand for SNP leader, I could stand for SNP leader, which is quite. The um... campaign starts today. <laughs> no, 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 no. Thank you. <laughs> you know how much abuse I get as a random woman. That's political. <laughs> I, I, I don't want that on my family or or myself. Um, I think that the scenario that it's someone who isn't an MSP is probably the most likely to scenario to see someone like John Swinney as first minister for a while. Um, but I, I don't know if this is, I don't speak on behalf of the party or the independence movement, but I think that we need to center Holyrood as the center of our political movement and our political consciousness. And the only people I'm considering voting for are MSBs currently. If for what it's worth. Um, I, I love Mary Black's politics. I have a lot of time for her. Um, I think she's doing really good work at Westminster. I think that every time you see Stephen Flynn talking, I think, you know, I think he listens to Mary Black. I think that she's a good influence on him and on the Westminster group, but we we don't want to be part of Westminster. So I don't really think that those candidates, and it really, you know, it's not a good look to to ship someone in. And I, I was going to say Mary Black was not the last name or the the name that was remaining on my list of a potential candidate. So that's interesting. So, so who was then? Who was um, on? Who did you think it would be? Well, the the name that I keep hearing is Neil Gray. Mm. Who? Interesting. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. Um, Why we all Google? Oh, do you not know who so he is? <laughs> he was in Westminster until mm-hmm. the last election. He's the one who did uh, give up his seat right? to run. Yeah. Um, he's a junior minister um, under Angus Robertson right now. He's dealing with the Ukraine stuff. I mean, I have so many good things to say about him. Um, and it'd be interesting to hear his pitch. And and a lot of the people who I respect are are. Um, saying they'd like to see him as leader. I, I'm not convinced that someone who's just from West... So anybody who brings Westminster culture into the party and into Holyrood, I'm more hesitant about. I, I'm not saying that Neil Gray is into Westminster culture, but I am saying that that was his political reality until a year and a half ago. Um, and that's my hesitancy. Um, I a lot of A lot of lefties in the party have a lot of time for him. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't be heartbroken if he was chosen for leader. I'm not convinced I'd give him my vote yet. Yeah, I am. Um, uh, and Neil Gray, I've got not anything negative to say about Neil Gray. I think he's um, competent. He speaks well um, every time. And he seems to be more on the progressive lefty side of, of things, which is, you know, in the in the scope of of SNP uh, mainstream politics, he definitely seems to be more on on the left side there. When it comes to Mary Black, um, I think Mary Black is um a really strong 
politician. I think she's a really strong speaker. I think she captures um, and engages a lot of people that perhaps um, certain SNP politicians might not. I would even um, apply that to Nicola Sturgeon as well, I think, because um, Mary Black, the way she communicates, I think is so relatable to a lot of people. So I think that um, I could definitely see a, a bright future for Mary Black um, in politics in general, um, whether that be post-independence, whether that be SNP in its current form, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I do wish that Mary Black was in Holyrood and not in Westminster, to be honest. I think that she would be a really strong MSP, um, perhaps on the front benches and, and perhaps, you know, an equalities type role. I think that she would be a really good and inclusive uh, person to have in Holyrood and really puts her case across really, really passionately. Um, it's interesting, like, just some of the scenarios you were saying, like, if an MP was to win, you know, you know, um, seat shift and get them into to Holyrood and things like that. I think that's a really bad look. Um, and I really, really think that the SNP needs to move on from that type of thing. I know that it used to happen in the past when the party was much smaller. They had less people that were standing to be elected. And, you know, there was people in Westminster and Holyrood and back and forth and all that jazz. And I really think it's a, it's a really bad look. But that brings on to something that I did want to say um, about this discussion more broadly is that could the change in, in Nicola Sturgeon's, you know, regardless to who becomes leader, that this could potentially bring around an early Scottish Parliament election? And I I mean, I don't know if it's going to happen or if it's not. However, I think the SNP uh, and their criticisms of the Tory government down south was very much like you don't have a mandate. You've just been selected by the membership um, was was one of their major attack lines. And I believe that if we end up in a situation where somebody is, you know, chosen by the, the SNP membership, they become they're voted in as first minister in the parliament, that that will be used as an attack line for, you know, basically the next what two and a half, three years. So I think that's something that that the SNP might want to consider and what the Scottish Parliament and the Scottish Government might want to consider to give, you know, perhaps this kind of falls more into the discussions that they might be having at their conference around their, step, their you know, their de facto referendums, their, 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 how they're going to move forward with with uh, bringing around Scottish independence. And, and that might be part of it, I don't know. But I think it's something that, uh, that definitely needs to be considered to give this new first minister the legitimacy that I think that they need um, in order to um, fend off um, opposition uh, parties. And also one thing on that, that I wouldn't necessarily mind another Scottish Parliament election because I believe that the Scottish Tories would go back to being a third party. And I think that that could only be a positive thing for the Scottish Parliament. Um, I, I really don't want an early election. But also, Brian, you just said something that made me change my mind a little bit and, and think about it. Maybe if there was someone that's not an MSP elected, Keith Brown would be first minister because he mm -hmm. has been deputy leader yeah. for quite a long time. And and this leadership contest is not a deputy leadership contest. Mm -hmm. I'd assume that if like there's a man elected as leader, we'll try and do a gender balance. Um, but... I wouldn't, I would not be sad to see Keith Brown as first minister. I kind of, I'm not convinced that he would have my vote in a, in a leadership selection, but uh, oh gosh, I, he'd do a great job, I think. There we go. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, that would be the way around the argument that it's, there's no mandate. And Mary Black, like, I think everybody on Gag is a Mary Black fan. 
Um, you know, she definitely is more in the left of SNP. But I think it would be quite soon. You know, I think it's easy to forget how young she still is. And as I was saying earlier, I wouldn't want what the Kezia Dugdale scenario where somebody was pushed to the front uh, way too soon and then really it kind of sets back their career in the long term. You know, Mario Black will still be a force in five years' time, ten years' time. Um, uh, and the fact that she didn't run in the Westminster leadership only a couple of months ago makes me think she's not somebody who's just desperately ambitious, which is another plus point in her favour. Mm. Uh, but it's maybe somebody more for the longer term. They yeah. want to cut this, but I don't know who Neil Gray is. I looked, I saw his picture, and I don't think I've even set eyes on him before. So I really can't have an opinion there. It would be a, it would take a bit of getting used to for me to uh, suddenly have a first minister that I'd never even recognised. Um, just on Mary Black, um, I mean, I think she's still under thirty. Yeah, um, so she's got a, a long time to go if she stays in politics. And uh, one of my first ungagged interviews was uh, with her uh, in our constituency office in Paisley, set up by by Sandra. And um, yeah, I thought she was fantastic. She was really nice. And the way she came across in that kind of personal situation was the way she comes across on TV and in the House and Commons. You know, just that same straightforwardness and bluntness in some ways. I suppose, but uh, um, uh, some people might think that, but yeah, just, you know, very much similar to Nicola Sturgeon in that way. You know, says her mind, is very straightforward and is honest about what she's talking about. So I would hope that, not now, not now is the right, now isn't the right time, but um, uh, within the, the future, within, as we're saying, sort of five or ten years, that uh, maybe that, that happens with her. Maybe she could be the prime minister of an the first prime minister of an independent Scotland. <laughs> well, it depends what system we got. If we end up in a presidential system after we through the monarchy, maybe Nicholas Sturgeon will be back as a, in a ceremonial <laughs> role. Be nice to think we get rid of the monarchy, but I think as the first step for me, getting rid of the monarchy isn't going to happen. I don't think people would, the majority of people would vote for it. We have to become independent with the monarchy and then get rid of them after that. You bring um, up the monarchy, the different candidate stance on the monarchy is actually uh, quite important to me on who I'll be supporting going forward. And it's very difficult to, uh, in in the SOP, to, to ascertain who is actually a soft Republican or anything like that. <laughs> Because I, I do generally agree, because don't we need the Crown consent for independence? Like, yeah, it's, um, I think it's a very good litmus test in the SNP, if you, ask, if you want to find out where they stand in the monarchy situation. Um, it's, it's difficult sometimes to reconcile when somebody's claiming to be in the left, yet they still support hereditary privilege. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's, just to pick up your point, right, about the early Holyrood election, I think, I think you're right. I think the opposition parties, particularly the Tories, maybe might go in that attack line. Um, but it's a different system, mm -hmm. and, and 
you know, the first minister doesn't have the power to call an election. So it would have to be this kind of, you know, procedural it's basically what we we're just talking about, how what a bad look it would be to be going by elections in order to shift people between parliaments. Mm-hmm. In, in reality, it would be quite a similar sort of thing a refuse to have somebody elected as first minister in order to force an election. Um, but yeah, I'm sure we'll still hear that brought out by the opposition party yeah. over the next couple of years. I think it will just be used to undermine any new first minister. I mean, it's going to be used in any way. And it's almost like, for me, for, you know, because I, I don't get, I, I'm not going to have a vote on who, on who the, the next first minister is. But it's almost a bit like just even considering these types of things, having a, a clear position set up to be like, you know, we hear you. However, this is the system. Da, 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 da. You know, I, I just think it's something that really needs to be considered. And I don't think, because the SNP has been, rightfully attacking you know the three prime ministers that we've had uh, the three Tory prime ministers we've had at Westminster um that they can't expect that this is not going to be um an attack line from you know the official opposition at Holyrood I think I'm just being biased because I think it would be really funny to see the Tories go to third place again I think that's just that's probably my main motivation for one on an early parliament election to be honest mm. as much as that would be great um I wouldn't want to put the Butte House agreement in jeopardy uh, that's something we haven't really talked about a lot, but the, the Butte House Agreement stands, right? I've seen a lot of people concerned about different things, but that's an agreement between two parties and, and to form the government. So I don't I don't think Green MSPs get to vote on who's the first minister in that kind of scenario. But um, if if the new first minister doesn't support the Butte House Agreement, that brings the whole government down. So... In the interest of that, as imperfect as it is, um, I, I'm not alone in SNP membership, which mm-hmm. really supports the Butte House Agreement and wants wants to see the changes that come about. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm, I'm quite um, public about the fact I voted against it anyway. So, <laughs> you know, if the Butte House Agreement crumbles, I'm not that um, not that upset about it. I was just going to ask if anybody had any final thoughts before we close it up. That the point on the Butte House Agreement was my final thought. So um, whether, Brian, are you a member of the Greens then? Yes. I mean, whether or not you support it, I think we're in agreement that the, the Scottish government would be worse off without it, at least for progressive. Oh, this is, this is like, no? this is, this is, we're about to start a whole new podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, maybe we no. can talk about this later. I, I'll just say really quickly that I think that I believe that the Scottish Green MSPs would have more leeway over passing certain legislation if they were in opposition. That's my view. That's fair. Okay. On that final note, this has been the ungagged reaction to Nicholas Sturgeon standing down as SNP leader and Scottish First Minister. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, everybody that's listening. I'll not go through my usual spiel because <laughs> we're already over time. Uh, and I'll be back with the new season of Hollywood and Gag sometime in March. So, see you then. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Cheers, folks.